station or the chair. You'll notice certain sensations that perhaps you've overlooked before. There's a sensation of pressure, perhaps, just by virtue of the weight of the body being held by the, by the seat. And there are obviously ambient sounds in the room. Those are included in our practice. They're not disturbances or foreign things that should stop now so I can be quiet. But all of our experiences are part of what we pay attention to because they're happening in the present moment. So coming back to your body, seated seated here, there was the pressure of the meeting of the weight of the body with the seat whatever uh, seat you're sitting on may be hard or soft. How is that? And you may even feel a temperature. There may be warmth or cool. And if you refine your attention, you may notice some tingling in the body. And just by simply bringing our attention to those sensations, if we really pay attention, we pay subtle attention, we'll notice that these experiences are elemental. The hardness or softness of the seat is earth element. The coolness or warmth or heat or cold that we feel is fire element. the tingling and vibration or other inherent physical sensation, sensational experience is the experience of water, the fluidity of the body. And the pressure is air. So we're sitting here in a very elemental experience. And we can actually bring our attention to it without intellectualizing about it. Just knowing, oh, this is the elements at play in this body. And we can spend the whole period just paying attention to that. 
because that is present moment experience that we can know right now and right here without judgment, without analysis, and without commentary. And that is essentially, I could stop right there and simply ask you to sit in the middle of that experience of bodily sensations coming and going and connecting us with the ground of experience. So I'll let you be in that experience for a while. And as we sit here, sounds that you're heard. There's no intent or particular effort required. There are images in the mind, perhaps. arise halfway. Perhaps tastes on the tongue. <coughs> Odors or aromas or the smell. We really Pay attention. <clears throat> your contact with your clothing on the body. The buttocks on the feet that we spoke about before. Parts of the body touching other parts of the body that contact. And you can pay attention to all of them. You don't have to seek it or make any special extra effort to know it. consciousness or the awareness of these five physical senses come and go without our having to control it or command it. And you don't have to seek them out in the sense of trying to see if they're there, but just noticing as they arise. Sounds where we have our eyes closed is probably the most common. 
course, our friends into the mind to produce a thought. And that thought is occasioned in exactly the same way as all of the other five senses. Thought comes, stays for a while perhaps, and then leaves just as sound or sight or taste or touch does. And we can allow all of these transitory experiences to be transitory, as is their nature. rather than grasping at any one of these experiences, noticing, perhaps, <coughs> that when these experiences or sensations are pleasant, there may be a tendency to lean into them or to want them to stay. And when they're unpleasant, that there's a tendency to either resist or lean back or actively try to push them away. And yet all of them have the same nature of transitory. So our practice is to invite the training of the mind, training of the heart, to allow these experiences to come and go as they naturally do, without our interference, but with our deep attention. And one way that we help this training is to beckon the mind towards some stillness, quiet, and what naturally arises from that stillness and quiet which is some concentration. And the way we begin to train the mind to that stillness and quiet and concentration, there are two ways. One is to simply choose an object that we focus on. And usually we use the breath. Just the rising and falling or coming and going of the breath. We allow the attention to fully embrace that coming and going. And notice that these other experiences to which I referred to in the beginning 
if it's empty. Come and go and leave. Let them be in the background. And in this way, the mind begins slowly to settle down. Every once in a while, one of these experiences becomes really predominant. A sound, a grasping. Or an unpleasant sensation or pleasant sensation in the body. Perhaps, perhaps the attention. And you can actually at that moment let go of the breath. and pay attention to this new predominant experience. But we pay attention not in a way of becoming embroiled in the sensation, but by knowing its presence, whether it's the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, or a thought. We notice its arrival. And if it abides, we simply know it's abiding without becoming embroiled in its content. And if we're really paying attention, we can notice when it's disappearing. And what it does, if nothing else, is grabbing the attention or becoming predominant, allowing, allowing the attention to simply return very quietly. To the movement of the breath again in the body. And perhaps from time to time we will lose our way and actually do become embroiled in a pattern of thought, kind of train of association that takes us way away from the present moment. When we notice that, we simply return, allowing the breath to invite us back into that stillness and quiet. without self-judgment or commentary, we return to this movement of breath, allowing that attention and that presence to quiet the mind, perhaps not completely, but little by little, becoming more and more quiet. And in the last few minutes of the sit, if you wish, you can uh, join me in a loving kindness or metta meditation. To again feel yourself seated on this meditation seat. And feel your heart 
beating in your chest, if you can, or at least know that it is. And allow your heart to open to embrace this precious one seated on this seat with all of its flaws and troubles, vicissitudes. Nothing required. Allowing this one to be just as they are. bringing an attitude of kindness and goodwill towards oneself. Wishing, may I be safe from harm. May I be happy and peaceful. May I have good health, however that is for this body. And may I be at ease. And experience freedom. And allow those wishes to penetrate. And you may even repeat them. The wishes for safety. Peace and happiness. Health. Ease and freedom. And then to think of a being who has been really good to you in your life. And bring as strong and clear an image as you can of that being into your heart. To sit in your heart with the image of yourself. And extend your kindness, your loving kindness, your wishes for the well-being of this important being in your life. May you be safe. You can even use their name. May you be safe from harm. Happy and peaceful. healthy and strong, live with ease and taste freedom.
And then feel the beings in this room all around you. And the same care and love that you felt for your benefactor, this being who has been good to you. See if you can let that emanate from your heart to encompass the beings in this room. Perhaps there's even a being in the room that you don't get along with or have a problem with right now. That's okay. Include them, especially, in your well-wishing, because all beings want to be safe and happy, healthy, and at ease. So may each and every one of you be safe and protected. May each and every one of you be happy and peaceful. May each and every one of you be healthy and strong. May each and every one of you live with complete ease and taste freedom. And let this feeling of goodwill emanate out from this room, down through this building, into this city, the sidewalks and all of the buildings, and the air of the city, down below into the subway, and out beyond the city, to the county and the counties beyond, and the states, and beyond all 48 lower states and the two outer states beyond to all countries, all beings everywhere without exception. Let your heart become as wide as the world, holding peacefulness and good wishes for all beings, all of the human beings and other living beings in this world. May all beings be safe from harm, happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with ease. May all beings taste freedom. and allow the full experience of this well-wishing and goodwill in your own heart. Notice any resistance there is also. And surround that with kindness.
So before we talk about things, Dharma, are there any questions about the practice itself? Because I know we don't usually don't allow enough time for people. Do you have any questions about the practice itself, meditation practice itself? So we all had a 45-minute transcendent experience. Could you talk a little bit about working with sleepiness while you're sitting? How long have you been practicing? About 12 years. And you still find sleepiness as, a, as an issue? And that's not a, that a judgment isn't implied in that question. And how do you, could you bring the mic back? How do you work with it? How do you work with it? Um, I, and what's if, your name? My name is Kevin. Kevin. Good morning. Good morning. And I sometimes, I, I'll take more deeper, some deeper breaths. Um, sometimes I'll open, open my eyes, kind of bring back clarity and focus. But I feel like I'm, I always feel like I'm fighting it. Mm. And mm. of how um, the idea of like working with it and not mm. fighting. Mm. Um, how, how, how do you think you might shift into that? It's rest. a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> that's re- first of all, that's, that's really not, that's not a bad suggestion. That's the first thing, but... It's it really it's it's a bit of a trick question. Because actually the first thing is to accept it. Right? And to just notice so when we're dealing with anything like any of the hindrances, which of course you probably know that sleepiness is one of the five hindrances that the Buddha talked about to meditation and actually five hindrances in life also. It's um craving and aversion, uh, sleepiness, the restless and worried mind, and uh, doubt. And when he gave teachings on these, always the first instruction was, it's here, to recognize it. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that today, actually. Uh, so thank you for leading me right in. Um, I think I just lost. No. Um, it's back on. Uh, so the first thing is to accept and recognize. I think I lost it again. No. No time. And to recognize to recognize that it's here. Oh, this is sleepiness. And 
it, it's a really beautiful. Um, it's like a fractal. I'm using it again. I'm losing yeah, it. It's the antenna. It's the antenna. What's well, not on the on the transmitter? Yeah. Did keep it out from under your side? Oh, if I keep it out, okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the light's going out. Oh, oh it, it's back on. Let's, so let's see. But I'll, I'll follow your instructions on that too. So it's like a fractal, right, of experience. So to just notice how we, we, have a, we have an idea of how things should be. I should sit down and meditate. And let me sit down to meditate. So the... Um, it's, so I was saying it's a fractal of, of experience. So when we recognize that something's here, that's really our first, our, that's our mindfulness practice, right? So when we sit down, we just, and, but we notice how we have an idea of how experience should be, right? It should be bliss, first thing, right? Hey, we're meditators, right? So bliss should be first high on our list, right, of experience. And it should be perfect. And to just feel what that is like, the amount of pressure that brings in every endeavor, that the struggle that we have as human beings is unacceptable. So we want, we want our minds to be perfectly bright, Aware, awake, not sleepy, not restless, not doubtful, not aversive, not craving, perfect. <laughs> right? And so the minute one of those hindrances arises, we get busy. Let me do this, let me do that. Maybe if I sit another way, maybe if I do this. It's my fault, I should have got more sleep last night, which is what you just said. Um, and the mind gets really busy trying to fix it. Now, you know, there's a little bit of a, an edge here because sometimes there are things that we can do. But notice the sequence of response. And the sequence is, here it is. This, is. this is sleepiness. And can you actually pay attention to that beautifully and perfectly? Um, imperfectly perfectly, or perfectly imperfectly. What's it like to be sleepy? You know, notice how the body starts to slump. The energy starts to go away. The eyes may get heavy, the throat may contract. All kinds of things are happening in the body when we describe our state as sleepy, right? Low energy. What's low energy like? Because there are lots of times in our lives where there's low energy, maybe because we're ill, or maybe because we can't sleep, or whatever whatever it is, do we just go right past what that present moment experience is like to the fixing? So even that you can notice, right? So you can notice how 
the mind immediately goes into, as you said, astutely, the fixing mode. Right? You just want to, you just want to like get it done. And usually, if you can actually pay attention to what sleepiness feels like in the body and not get stuck in the concept of sleepiness, the energy lifts because now you've paid, now you're paying attention. Now you're wide awake, like, whoa, what is sleepiness like? Right? And it feels a bit oxymoronic, maybe. But try it. So, but you know, the Buddha did go through, so here at the edge, the Buddha did go through different ways that you can work with sleepiness. And walking meditation, for instance, is a really good um, counterbalance when the when the energy gets low and we really want to practice so we can we can stand up we can do walking meditation you can throw water on your face you can uh, you know do all of those things and he said the last resort is to get some sleep <laughs> okay so let's do a little chanting before i speak and what we'll do is call and response because there are probably a few people who don't know these chants. So we do first an homage to the Buddha and then uh, we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. And that means homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. <clears throat> and then we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Buddhang Saranangachami. Dhammang Saranangachami Sangang Saranangachami Duty MP, which means for the second time. Duty MP Buddhang Saranangachami Dhammang Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami And for the third time, Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangachami Tatiampi 
Damang Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami bells are with us. <laughs> so I'd like to talk about the Four Noble Truths today, which is the uh, central teaching of the Buddha, the, the teaching that he gave uh, right after his enlightenment, the first teaching, and it's called uh, Setting the Wheel of Dharma in Motion. But I'm probably going to speak very little about the last three noble truths and speak mostly about the first noble truth. And you'll understand why in a moment. Uh, We tend to uh, use these four noble truths as a template for Uh, understanding why we practice and how we practice. And just so that you know what they are, if you've not heard the teaching before, it's that there is dukkha, uh, a a word that has been uh, trans... It's a Pali word and Sanskrit word too that's been translated most ubiquitously in the West as suffering. But it's more complex than that. There is dukkha, is really a a broad statement of the nature of this life, the nature of being human, And I like to use the word vulnerability and the words vulnerability and uncertainty. Sometimes you'll see it uh, translated as unsatisfactoriness, which I think is kind of polite to describe our human dilemmas, the vicissitudes that come because we take on a body, a physical body, I think somehow vulnerability and uncertainty for me more touches into what is true. And from that vulnerability and uncertainty, if we are unable to work with it, then suffering comes very um, logically. Because if we're not dealing with the nature of life as it is, As Kevin was saying, when anything arises that seems dissonant with the way we think things ought to be, we get very busy trying to make it fit, make it less uncertain, make make ourselves less vulnerable. And from that tightness and that resistance comes suffering. And that's what the Buddha said is the second noble truth that there is a cause for this dukkha, this, this suffering from the vulnerability and uncertainty. And that's the clinging and craving mind. 
that we crave the pleasant and do everything we can to make everything as pleasant and as uh, certain and invulnerable as possible. And to resist all of the evidence that's around us of this uncertainty and vulnerability. So this craving and resisting, and of course resisting is also a kind of aspect of craving. So we crave the pleasant, we want to hold it on, hold on to it despite uh, all of the evidence that everything in this life is impermanent. And we want to push away what is uh, unsatisfactory or evidence of our vulnerability and uncertainty. We don't want to we don't want it to touch us. And then the third truth, he said, is that it is uh, possible to be free of the suffering of this craving and resistance. That's the third truth. And then the, the fourth truth, that there is a path. And that path is what brings us all here, whether we know it or not. <clears throat> whether we can recite the, the eight steps of the path. It's called an eightfold path, the noble eightfold path. And essentially it has three limbs, wisdom, integrity, and uh, meditation. And wisdom is the understanding of uh, intention. And the wisdom of knowing what is true. The impermanence of things. The lack of control that we have, the non-self aspect of existence. There's nothing solid that we can hold on to. It's all coming and going, appearing and disappearing, temporary, impermanent. And the integrity that there is uh, wise speech and morality. And meditation, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, wise mindfulness. And, you know, in in America and in the West, really, we've uh, really put meditation at the center of the path. And it's certainly a, a, a very important aspect of the path. But from my own experience, from my own practice, I think it would behoove us to really understand the wisdom and integrity aspects of the path equally, to put those into practice in the same way that the same kind of with the same kind of enthusiasm that we come to meditation. 
because what the Buddha said in connection with this whole, uh, these four noble truths, is that I teach one thing and one thing only, and that is dukkha and the end of dukkha. And it, it, it can get kind of confusing because people think that du- if dukkha isn't suffering, if it's just you know, this uncertainty and invulnerability, and, and vulnerability, then uh, how can there be an end to it? Right. But there's an end to it in the sense that uh, when we begin to relate to the nature of things as they are, then there's certainty in the uncertainty and invulnerability in the vulnerability, and therefore an end to suffering. You with me so far? So I, you know, I, I think as teachers, we like to kind of get to the third noble truth, right? Because it's yay, there's freedom, right? And yet I think without the understanding of the first noble truth, and really it's, it's like the conversation Kevin, Kevin and I were having about sleepiness, that if we jump over that first noble truth of there is dukkha, it's as if we're building a, a house, a second story of a house, without having really planted the first story in a deep foundation. So what the Buddha said about the first noble truth is that dukkha should be understood. Right? So we hear the, we hear the, the, the four noble truths, but we don't always hear those. He, he talked about 12 aspects, really. So he said dukkha, there is dukkha, dukkha should be understood, and dukkha has been understood. In other words, it's possible for dukkha to be understood. But it won't be understood if there isn't a, a, a real effort <clears throat> to dive into and delve into its existence in your life. And what I think happens is that we're so perfectionistic and it's not our fault none of this is our fault right so we can just like drop any idea that we're talking about fault but to really understand the nature of conditioning and being human that it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation that the way to have a happy life really is to figure out how to do it. And if you haven't figured out how to do it, somehow you've gone wrong. Somehow, if there is still dukkha in your life, that's because you just haven't gotten it yet. But there's somebody out there somewhere who actually has gotten it, and it ain't you. (laughs) Right? So immediately we're falling short because we haven't figured out 
how to get rid of it, how to not have it, how to not be sleepy, how to not, you know, you can fill in the blanks for your own selves. And what happens, I think, is there's a lot of shame that comes up because we're dealing with dukkha. That we, we can't, we can't quite, we can't make, make all the pieces fit together in a way we can't put a life together that doesn't have trouble. And that somehow the struggle, the struggle to put this together makes us wrong. That the fear and the rage, the anger, really comes out, not out of our being bad people, or comes out of our being uh, somehow deficient, but that it's part of the vulnerability and the uncertainty. And to not be able to express the fear, or the anger, or the rage, puts us in a very, uh, even more vulnerable position. Because it's almost as if it's, it's impossible for us to acknowledge it. Because if we've acknowledged it, we're acknowledging not, not that this is what's true, but that we've somehow failed. And so, as I was coming down here this morning, I, want, I, I was really reflecting, I, you know, I'd planned to talk about the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> but I really realized, even for my own self, <laughs> how I love to go to the Third Truth. I just love it. You know, the, the possibility of freedom. Yes, that's for me. And how even as teachers, you know, there's this really kind of precarious place that we live, right? Because the freedom comes and goes. And how much do we really want to divulge to our students, right? That we haven't gotten it completely right yet. We're not perfect. And how much shame there is in having to admit that. And then, if we're parents, it kind of gets all crazy, right? Because then somehow we think, as parents, that if our children have the same vulnerability and uncertainty and they fail at things, that it's our fault. So it keeps, and, and then we pass that on to them, and, you know, their children and their children and their children. And I was thinking this morning as I was driving in about all of the Dr. Spock books and all of the books about how you raise your children. And everybody who writes a book about it, you know, you need to ask them how perfect their children are, right? before you buy the book. Because I think what 
they'll all tell you is that life is a series of failures and hopefully from time to time successes. But that somehow the, the failures and the struggle are woven into the fabric of life. That we are, uh, right now my, my husband is going through a, a health struggle. <clears throat> and we had a period of time where it had, it felt it was, it, it was in uh, remission. And it came back. And I, I watched myself actually wondering if there was something we could have done that would have prevented it. Or if there is some way in which we can find the solution, right? The solution, that thing that eludes us, the solution. And how we can actually be with the uncertainty. And in the middle of that reflection, I said, Gina, you're a Buddhist teacher for Christ's sake, right? <laughs> so what, how, what do we do, right? And there was immediately the recognition, oh, it was always uncertain. There was always, there is always this fragility, this vulnerability, this uncertainty, and it's not our fault. It's not our fault. And that what happens is that there are events in our lives that actually remind us of the uncertainty. Yes? Right? But it's not that when these events come up, that it becomes uncertain, but that actually the uncertainty is woven into every fiber of our being. So dukkha should be understood. For those of you who've not done a lot of Buddhist study of the texts, in the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha teaches the establishment of mindfulness in four different ways, in the body, in the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, in consciousness, and in a whole, he gives a whole way in which we can look at, lens through which we can be mindful of life. The seven factors of awakening, the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the the um, six sense bases, all kinds of different ways. And the last one, the ultimate one, is these four noble truths. So what he's inviting us to do is to actually look at the experiences of our lives through these lenses. 
So this lens of, uh, so, so saying, there is dukkha, and dukkha should be understood, is not a kind of throwaway line, right? It's a, it's a significant teaching that we need to pay attention when there is suffering in our lives to actually understand it deeply. So there's all kinds of suffering, right? There's the suffering in our culture and in our world right now of racism and classism, economic oppression, racist oppression, uh, policies that create large, large pools of poverty all over the world. That we as human beings have not figured out how to take care of each other completely. It's clear. We haven't figured it out. And it doesn't mean that we haven't figured it out because we have this political belief or that political belief or this economic theory or that economic theory. But that in a way, and can you really feel the poignancy of this? If we can't understand dukkha in our own lives, if we can't understand the struggle that we are all engaged in and understand it as a natural part of this being human, how can compassion arise? And without compassion, we're sunk. (laughs) We're sunk. And I don't mean kind of, my mother used to have an expression, flibbity-jibbit compassion, right? But the deepest kind of compassion that understands our own suffering. We start there. We understand dukkha in our own lives. And if we're able to do that in a really profound way, not skip over it, not try to fix it, not try to make it go away, but understand it, that we're on our way. And if we can understand it in our own lives, then compassion naturally arises and we understand it in every other being's lives. And that doesn't mean that we understand it in our family or our community or our country, but we understand it globally. And, and we're not looking to say, well, you know, something's gone terribly wrong because we have a Middle East that is like completely exploding. What did we expect? What did we expect if greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the causes, the second noble truth, the causes of dukkha, if that's how we proceed in life, 
And the delusion, the ignorance, is the not having dukkha be understood. And if we are proceeding in that way, then how is the world to not be on, how, how can the world come to not be on fire? The second noble truth that we are uh, in dukkha because of greed, hatred, and delusion, this clinging mind that wants everything for itself, wants to push away anything uncertain, vulnerable, or unpleasant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.